reverence uh, for the Word of God, for its inspiration, its authority. Would you stand if you're physically able for the reading? From Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church, and may God show us by his spirit yet again how his word, how Palm Sunday actually answers the deepest questions of the human heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So yesterday, as is my normal practice, I went to the gym and uh, did somebody lose some hair? Leave that there. <laughs> so I went to the gym and I met this guy working out. We'd, I'd never seen him before, not going to introduce myself. And we did the, who are you? When did you come here? What do you do thing? And so I tell him I'm a pastor. And he very quickly kind of waved his hands and goes, yeah, I don't, I don't do that thing. I don't do that spiritual thing at all, that religious thing. I'm like, I'm all good. Like, I'm not going to threaten you with anything or come after you, right? He was trying to be sure I was keeping my distance. And, and in my head, I thought, you know, that, that's fine. He's not, I wouldn't come after him anyway because he's not at a point where he's really asking those deeper questions. He's not trying to figure it out yet, but I absolutely believe that one day he will because I think God has put those questions in all of us. It's Ecclesiastes chapter three, um, verse 11. It says, God has set eternity in the hearts of his people. So God planted in you and in everybody he made questions about eternal things. Because as you try to understand the answer to those questions, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? As you search for answers, it's like a homing device. God put it there so that eventually our search to answer the question would lead us to him. And what I find is those questions come up at critical times in life where there are circumstantial challenges or issues. Maybe uh, a close person in your life, a loved one dies, or maybe a relationship ends. Maybe when you graduate high school, you graduate college, you go through and you start, it, it brings those questions to the forefront of our minds. I, I love a story that Tim Keller tells about one of his professors in seminary. It was his mission professor, his name was Addison Leach, and he went and he spoke at this mission conference. 
And he was trying to encourage young people, college students, to go on the mission field. And so sure enough, two young women who were there, they were in college, they decided, we're gonna go into global missions. We're gonna go overseas. And they go home and they tell their parents, well, their parents got so mad at this professor. And they called him, they said, you, you are spreading religious fanaticism to our daughters. And they wrote him a letter. And they said, you know, there's no security in being a missionary. The pay is low. The living situation is dangerous. We've tried talking to our daughters. They need to get a job and a career, maybe get a master's degree or something like that so they have some security before they go off and do this missionary thing. Well, Professor Leach wrote him a letter back and he said, you want them to have some security? We're all in a little ball of rock called Earth and we're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. Someday a trapdoor is going to open up under every single one of us and we're all gonna fall through it. And either there will be millions and millions of miles of nothing or else there will be the everlasting arms of God and you want them to get a master's degree to give them a little security? I think that is so good because that's exactly what we do. The questions are all there, but we kind of pretend we cover the questions with master's degrees and bank accounts that have some money in them. And we think, oh no, I'm secure, right until those circumstantial things start to change. And we, we do the cultural thing, right? Most of us, we kind of follow the rules and we make good grades so we can go to college and get a job and get married and have kids, have family in order to do this and this and this. And, but at some point along the way, you, you gotta stop and say, I mean, is, is this all there is? Because at some point work is frustrating. Work happens amongst the thorns and the thistles. Relationships might not be nearly as fulfilling as we thought and they're hard. And the whole time you're doing the best you can just to get through life, you see innocent people suffering, people you care about suffering, you start asking the bigger questions. And in our current cultural context, now we ask those questions in the midst of this sort of anti-religious fervor, where if you're somebody who actually believes in Jesus and believes in the Bible, there's kind of a, a hostility towards us almost. People trying to tell us, you know, you're kind of an idiot, for an intellectual pygmy for believing what you believe, right? And then we have this thing called the pandemic. For, for several months there, we lost all of our mid-level hopes. We couldn't even make plans for the future. We didn't even know what our life was gonna be. And then today, I mean, now there's a war in Western Europe. I mean, I think a lot of us thought we were past that. And now we're actually seeing atrocities that we thought that we had learned our lesson from in the Second World War, but here they are again. And it creates this disequilibrium. It pushes the bigger existential questions. Who, who am I? Where is God? What is my purpose in the midst of all of these challenges that I see before us? But I would tell you, friends, that even though those are hard questions, they're good questions because they lead us right here. If you feel that sense of disequilibrium and concern, if those questions are coming to the forefront of your mind, well, the good news is that God has something to say to you on Palm Sunday, that Christianity actually answers the deepest longings of our hearts, and that's why Palm Sunday matters. We've been in this series now for, for six weeks about a walk to the cross where we've been going with Jesus in the last week of his life, and we've seen our, our duplicitous nature, right? That we like to have a, a foot in two worlds. 
We looked at innocent suffering. We looked at the examination of Pilate and Jesus, and we thought about the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? But the larger question is, what will Jesus do with me? Right? And then last week, we looked at that, that fraternity at the foot of the cross, that we who follow Jesus, are we willing to enter in and share in the fellowship of suffering at the foot of the cross? Will we follow Jesus all the way there? And then today we come to Palm Sunday, this unique day where the Bible tells us that Jesus is preparing to enter Jerusalem. He's not gone in yet in Mark chapter 11. He's in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, and he's making a plan to go in. And remember, it's Passover. So, so there are thousands of people streaming in by every possible road in every direction. They're coming into Jerusalem. But Jesus stops and he says, there's going to be a particular way I'm going to go in. And I'm going to go in on a cult. And so much of the preparations revolve around this single animal. And it's amazing to me today the truth that God communicates through one single physical being, this cult that Jesus rides in on, on Palm Sunday. It goes all the way back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Why was Jesus so specific in his instruction? Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He's saying to the Israelites, Rejoice, because see, your king comes to you. The Messiah is coming, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever thinks about coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, a prophet says that the one who would bring salvation, that the one who would inaugurate this new kingdom where he would rule, but that kingdom would be a kingdom of peace, that that king would come riding on a gentle donkey. And it wasn't what the Jews expected. But friends, I believe today in Christ, it's what our heart yearns for. Don't we yearn to hear that the one who comes, he comes to bring peace and he comes to rule. He comes to be the king of an upside down kingdom that doesn't operate the way any of these things in our world operate today. It's a new kingdom. It's a divine kingdom. And it's a kingdom I believe that just, just through what God says about this one animal, I think it's the kingdom that we want to be part of. So what do we learn? Well, first is God has a plan, right? And isn't that what we all want to know? I mean, I'm going to feel so much better about my life if I just know there's a plan. Like if I'm going to go in for surgery, I don't want the doctor to say, well, just come on in at seven. We'll fix you right up. No, no. I want to know what's going to happen at seven. And then what's going to happen at 7.30? And when you open me up, just what exactly are you going to do in there? Right? I, don't want to, I want to know there's a plan. Right? And so that's the beauty of what Jesus says in Mark 11. He says, look, disciples, here's what we're going to do. 
I want you to go into town. There's going to be this colt tied up in this particular spot. And you take that. And if anybody asks you a question, you just tell them I need it and I'll bring it back. And sure enough, the disciples go in. That's exactly what they find. They find the colt tied up. The people ask the question. They give them Jesus' answer and they let them go. And they go back. People, don't you see? That in this one moment in Mark 11, Jesus is revealing to us his Godhead, his Godhood, his Godship, whatever you want to call it. He's God because he said, here's what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. And it happened exactly the way he said. He's going to execute the plan that he has. That's why Psalm 33:11 11 matters to us. It says the Lord foils the plans of the nations And we see a lot of nations with a lot of plans these days. But we need to hear there's a plan that's not going to be foiled. It says the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. So we take confidence in knowing that God has a plan, and that's actually how you start to answer the bigger questions. When you're trying to figure out who am I and why am I here and what is my future and how do I find security, you can't answer those questions until you answer the bigger questions which underlie it, which is what's the larger plan or the larger story that I'm a part of? Is it just about my plan and my story or is there a bigger plan that I'm a part of? Well, on Palm Sunday, Jesus says you're part of a bigger plan. There's a bigger story and what's the story? It's to redeem and save you. I'm coming in on this donkey because what the donkey says is I'm the one who's gonna bring salvation to you and to you. And I'm going to be the one who saves you from your sins. And friends, that's what we ask for in so many different arenas in our lives. Whenever we come to election, we've got all these problems in our communities, in our country. What do we want to know? We want to know what's your plan to fix all this? What's your plan for affordable housing? What's your plan for transportation? What's your, we want to know who's got a plan. For heaven's sake, when I interviewed to be your pastor, one of the first questions was, what's your plan for First Press? Right? If we just know that there's a plan that gives us such greater security and confidence, people, the good news of Palm Sunday is clearly Jesus is God and he's got a plan. And the plan is for him to be your Messiah, for him to bring salvation and peace to you. But it's not just that. It's actually a plan that's bigger than that. It's a plan to redeem your life, but it's also a plan to redeem all history, to redeem your past. See, if you think about it, when someone's going to come into a community in those days, if they were going to come in as a king, how would that person arrive in the community? You think about the, the great Caesars. Man, they came parading in on a war horse with the big hooves and the stomping, and here they came in might and power, and glory. But Jesus, Tim Keller says, he didn't come in like a king. He came in like a court jester. Right? I'm sure the disciples, having seen kings enter communities, or at least heard of it, when they go get the donkey, they must have been looking at each other going, are you sure this is the right one? Jesus is going to ride this. But what does his choice of a donkey tell us? His choice of the donkey tells us that in the kingdom of God, all the weak things 
and the burdened things and the lowly things and the cast off things, the things that you and I experience in this life, all of our wounds, all of our scars, they get taken up in this larger redemptive plan of God. See, when Jesus rises on the third day, that didn't eliminate his agony. That didn't take away the pain. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't take away his pain and suffering, but what did it do? It redeemed them. It redeemed the agony. It redeemed the suffering. Tim Keller writes of that moment, he says, Jesus' resurrection does not make the death of Jesus as if it didn't happen. Instead, it says that because of his suffering and death and pain, he's infinitely more to us than he would have been otherwise. Think about that. When God resurrects the universe as he promised, the restored to perfect world will be infinitely greater than a world that was always perfect. Why? Let me read that again. The restored to perfect world will be infinitely greater than a world that had always been perfect. Why? Because in a world that was always perfect, there would never have been bravery or sacrifice or nobility or faithfulness, love in spite of death, healing, or joy beyond hope. See, if you never knew what failure was, you'd never know what it is to get up. If you never knew what it was to hurt, you wouldn't know what it is to heal. If you didn't know what it was to be rejected, you wouldn't know what it means to be welcomed. If you never hurt someone else, you wouldn't know what it is to be forgiven and treated with grace. And so God takes all of those things and they're not wasted. But in this beautiful, glorious way, God takes them up in his greater plan of redemption. So the great hymn, crown him with many crowns, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side. In other words, look at his wounds. He's glorified, the wounds are still there, but what do they look like? Rich wounds, rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty, glorified. Can you imagine that? Everything you've suffered, every wound, all your brokenness and your sadness, they become beautiful. They become redeemed. And your redemption and your glory is all the greater. It's all the more sweet because you were wounded, because you were scarred. It's just that now those wounds become glorified all revealed in a cult because Jesus said, I'm not going to come in might. I'm going to come in brokenness. I'm not going to come in power. I'm going to come in humility. And that's going to be the nature of my kingdom. But then the third thing, he redeems our lives. He redeems our past, our history, but then he redeems our physical world. See, too often we forget that when, when we fell in sin, all creation fell with us. And so that's why in this world, there are hard things that happen. There are diseases that break the human body. There are natural disasters that destroy our lands. That's why there's enmity among the created things, why the strong eat the weak, just how nature works, which is why the prophecy of Isaiah matters. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, 
And what happens to all creation? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. You see what happens? All creation is healed. All creation is redeemed. Our physical world. You know, one time I was back in Chattanooga. I used to love to ride horses in my younger days. And I went to see some friends of mine. They had several horses. And I said, hey, can I go ride? Sure. I go saddle a horse. Didn't know this horse. Never met this horse. Horse had never met me. I got on. It was not a great relationship. We were kind of struggling. And, but I, I take off. We ride across this field. But we hadn't gotten maybe 500 yards. And all of a sudden, that horse stops and starts bucking, is not happy with me, wants me off. And so we had, a, we had to have a little come to Jesus meeting right there. And so I had to yank his head down. And I'm like, I ain't getting off. And so we had kind of a, a, a you know, the immovable uh, place and the, hard, the, the rock and a hard place. That's what it was. We're right there. But the only way, so, so he wouldn't go forward and I wasn't gonna let go of his head. He'd stop bucking. But finally, I realized if I just turned him and pointed him towards the barn, he was great, <laughs> right? And then I gave him his head and he rode right straight back home. And we went back to the barn. It just didn't work out well. But I want you to see what happens here with Jesus. He takes a colt. It's not very big and it's not very strong. It's weak and it's never been ridden. What do you know about colts? They don't want to be ridden. Nothing in them that wants to be ridden. And yet here's a bunch of strange people they've never seen before. And they throw a bunch of jackets on his back. And then they put this huge guy named Jesus on his back. And then they put him in the middle of a big crowd where people are waving things. And then they're throwing stuff on the ground in front of it. And what happens? Absolutely nothing. The colt and Jesus walk in perfect peace because a little child was leading them, the one who became a man and who was willing to go to the cross in order to redeem not only our lives and our past, but to redeem and bring peace to all creation. See, Christianity, more than any other religion in the world, affirms our physical existence, our physical world, our physical bodies. So as Christians, we should pay attention to how we glorify God through our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What we do with our bodies matters, and what we do with our physical world matters. What we do with the environment matters. It's God's creation. We don't have disposable bodies, and we don't have a disposable planet. This is where we're gonna live forever in a redeemed fashion. And so we stand up against all the injustices to human physical need and to environmental creation need, absolutely. But you know what else is true? Christians also ought to absolutely throw the best parties. We should enjoy the planet more than anybody else because we know who it is that created it. We know where it came from. I know we're not supposed to leap ahead to Easter quite yet, but I got to do this, just one thing. You know what I love about the resurrection appearances? Jesus ate. He's glorified, people. He doesn't need additional protein. Why did he eat? Because he just loved food. 
I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. Right? What was the first miracle? He turns water into wine because he's at a wedding reception celebrating people, relationships. David, when he wanted to worship, what did he do? He did it in a physical way. He danced. See, God says, I'm going to redeem your life, I'm going to redeem your past. But even through this cult and the relationship between the cult and Jesus, I'm going to heal all the strife in creation. And the lion's going to live with the lamb. The lion and the yearling. Because this little child is leading us. You see, friends, Palm Sunday answers the bigger questions. And it bothers me when so many people, they're struggling to find their way home. Right, what do we know about salmon? We know salmon struggle to get back upstream to where they're trying to be able to lay their eggs and continue their life. But we know a lot of them don't make it. They die trying. And it just seems like that's what so many people in life are doing. They're trying to get to this place where they're satisfied, where they understand the answers to the big questions, but they die trying. They never find the answer. People, Christianity, this week, Palm Sunday, tells you who you are as a redeemed child of the living God. It tells you where you're going to the restored beauty and hope of a spiritual kingdom in which the king reigns in peace. And it gives you a purpose for how to live between now and what is yet to come. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the hope of Palm Sunday. And it's the beauty of these days to come, even in the suffering of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we often use earthly means to kind of cover up the, the harder questions. But then something happens, and that question is ever before us. Why am I here? Why are these things happening in the world? Well, the world is broken. And Lord, we know by that brokenness that's precisely why Jesus came into Jerusalem. He came to give his life in order to redeem the very things that we see happening in our world today. So Father, I pray that you would give to us the confidence and the security that comes from understanding the magnitude of Palm Sunday. But not only that, that we would be equipped and prepared to move into the world, to be with others, at the moment when they ask those questions and to say, have you thought about, have you considered the person of Jesus that we might be light in this darkness? Come Holy Spirit, come and teach us about who we are, where we're going, that we might live in the security and the confidence of you, our God. We ask it and pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.